scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 17 through 37. This is on pages 897 and 898 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one as a gift from us. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. Well, the question that we just heard read, if Jesus could keep or could, could open a blind man's eyes, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? That question goes to the heart of so much of our struggle uh, in life. It goes to so much of the question, the heart of the question of our struggle in believing and trusting in God. I mean, God, if you could make the world with a word, if you can part the sea, if you can still the storms, why didn't you keep my child from dying? Why didn't you rescue my brother from that addiction? Why didn't you heal my wife? Why haven't you given us a baby? 
Why did that girl refuse me again? Why did my spouse leave me? This question is the wellspring of lament. Every lament spills over the banks of our hearts with the cry of, How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me? Why are you testing me? This question can also be the root of so much doubt and and disbelief and struggle and questioning, anger. Bill, I hear every week someone stand and say that we believe that God hears and answers prayer. He hasn't answered mine. Now this morning, some of you are right in the middle of it. You you know this, and this is right where you are. And and you walked in this morning, and and that question sticks like a glass splinter in your finger that's always there. Maybe an activity kind of dulls it or you forget about it, but the pain is never gone. And other of you are sitting here thinking, wow, this is really depressing. And and isn't church supposed to be a little bit more positive and encouraging than this? I came in feeling great. It's a sunny day, and and now, wow. And, And it is true that the local church is a place of rejoicing. But it's also a place where we mourn with those who mourn. So I invite you, each one of you, into that place of, of mourning and lament this morning. Be, because while you may not feel it right now, every one of us at some point has or will ask the question, where is God? And how can I know that he hasn't abandoned me? And what we're going to see this morning is that some questions only have one answer. Some questions only have one answer. And and I know that I'm not the one with that answer. But we long for an answer, don't we? Because, Because almost no one argues that the world is fine as it is and that there's nothing wrong. And everyone, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, whether you consider yourself religious or not, tries to answer the question, if, if, if God is good and real, why do we suffer like we do? And, and so what is Christianity's response to this? How, how do Christians answer that question? Well, we see it in John chapter 11. We see it where Jesus is listening to the grieving. For the past several weeks, as we've looked at the Gospel of John, which is John the Apostle, this is his eyewitness account of being with Jesus for three years and recording what he saw. And, and as we've looked at John's Gospel, at these accounts, we've, we've seen him listening to the skeptic, Jesus listening to Nathaniel, who was skeptical about Jesus. We've seen him listening to the satisfied, to the social outcast, to the religious, even to the indifferent. And here this morning, we see Jesus listening to the grieving, to the brokenhearted, This morning, as we look at John chapter 11, we're going to see the the question, we're going to see his reply, and then we're going to see the answer. So so the question, the reply, and then the answer. So first, let's look at the question. Uh, In John chapter 11, verse 1, uh, John introduces us to Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And right off of the bat in John chapter 11, it tells us that Lazarus is sick and, and he's not doing well. In in fact, he's getting worse, and then with his devastated family gathered around him at his home, his sisters weeping, he dies. Gone. Over. 
final. Call the mourners and the undertaker. It's now in, in death, and you know this if you've experienced it up close and personal, in death there is a crushing, silent stillness in the form of a corpse where there was once life and energy. And when Jesus and the disciples arrive in verse 17, John tells us that not only is Lazarus already dead, that he's actually been buried for four days. And when Mary and Martha hear that Jesus is coming, they, they both come out to meet him before he even arrives at their home. Martha first and then Mary. And Mary and Martha, they both come to Jesus with the same, same statement. It's, it's almost an accusation. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And behind that statement is a question, the question, the question that every one of us will ask at some point, Jesus, where were you? Why weren't you here? And, and that's actually a, a good question even to ask in the narrative. Where, where was Jesus? And, and to find out, we need to, to back up a few paragraphs from where that verse is in verse 21, back to verse 3. So take a look there. Verse 3 of John chapter 11 says, So the sister sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, Lazarus, whom you love, is ill. And so Jesus is not there in Bethany. He's, he's away out in the wilderness somewhere. And, and the question is, maybe he's just too far away to reach Lazarus in time. We know he's in the wilderness, and he's at least several days' journey from Bethany. Maybe he gets word, but he just can't get there in time. But if we keep reading, we know this isn't the case. And what we find in verses 5 and 6 is hard to hear. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and, his sister, and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It's like, wait a second, what? <laughs> he hears that, that Lazarus is sick, and at that point he says, Oh, I'm going to stay here longer by two days? Jesus hears that his, his friend, I mean, this isn't some random guy that Jesus has, has never met. It, it, this is his, his friend. He, and he's sick. He's even dying. I mean, that's the implication here. I mean, they didn't send messenger out into the wilderness to find Jesus because Lazarus had a runny nose. He's dying. And what does Jesus do? He decides to extend his stay in the wilderness. And in fact, in, in, if we keep on reading in verses 14 and 15, we realize that Jesus waits until, Jesus, until Lazarus dies. That's, Jesus lets Lazarus die. Jesus lets him die. And there's no way around this. John is clear. He stays longer and waits to go until he's dead. And this is actually why, why Jesus doesn't rebuke Mary or Martha when they come and say, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. I mean, yes, Jesus could have healed Lazarus. He could have saved his life, but he didn't. In, in fact, he chose not to. So where was Jesus? He's 100 miles away, waiting for Lazarus to die, silent, while Mary and Martha watched their brother die grieving him alone while the one they had put their hopes in delayed on purpose. And it's in those moments that we ask the question, 
Where is God? Where was God? And, and the thing about it is this story doesn't give us an image of a God who rushes to our rescue, but, a, but actually if we look at this account only, it's of a God who delays, who waits, who ordains grieving, suffering, and even death. And, and so what does this mean? Uh, I think there, there are three responses to this. First, it could mean that we believe in a lesser God, a, a God who, who doesn't know or who, who couldn't save. But when you read through the Bible, there's just, the Bible has no room for, for that answer. Anytime something terrible happens in the Bible, ultimately God accepts responsibility. Because everyone in the story thinks that Jesus could have stopped Lazarus' death. And Jesus never denies that he could have. Or, second, we could conclude that there just isn't a God at all. And maybe, maybe that's where some of you are at right now this morning. You came with a neighbor or co-worker invited you to come to church, and you just, I just, I don't even think there is a God. I mean, you look around at the world, and, and you say, there couldn't possibly be a God, or, or at least not one worthy of my allegiance. And I understand that. I understand that. I, I get it. And I just say, stay with me. That's where you're at. Stay with me for just a few more minutes. Or third, we have a God who could have stopped it, or at least prevented it, but didn't. And this is what we find in the Bible, and this is what we find in John chapter 11. The, the, the reality is that whatever you face in your life, God is responsible. The reality is, is that whatever you face in your life, God is ultimately responsible. Now, I don't say that as a glib statement. I say that as a, as a pastor who's had to wrestle deeply with, with God's own absence and uh, in, in that sense of his absence in my own life. And more significantly, I, I say it to you as, as, as your pastor who's cried with you when you found out your baby wasn't going to live, who cried out with you in your living room when you found out your son died. As a pastor who called you late at night when you found out your dad had just passed away. As a pastor who hugged you when you found out you had a miscarriage again. Things will happen to you that you will wonder like Martha and Mary, why didn't God act? Where was he? Some questions only have one answer. And I'm not the one who can give that answer. So Mary and Martha, they asked the question, Jesus, where were you? So, so how does Jesus reply? Let's take a look. First, we, we see him with Martha. And, and even in the same breath as she cries out, where were you? She says in verse 22, she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, Martha. And Martha said to him, I, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? 
You see, Martha, she comes to Jesus with some faith. I mean, she believes that Jesus could have stopped it, and she believes that Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. But then Jesus does something really odd. When you think, if you've heard this story before, we get used to it, but Jesus does something really odd in this moment. He proceeds to make Martha's brother's death completely about him. He says, no, no, look, this is about me. I'm the resurrection and the life. I mean, anyone else says that to you at a funeral, but this is completely outlandish, right? He begins with a theological statement, but then he pushes Martha to personal trust in him. And because Jesus makes this fantastic, even what would be outrageous and arrogant claim if made by an ordinary person, we have to stop and wonder, what does he really mean here? What's he really saying? Because he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. This is ultimately about me. And this is like the moment back in John chapter 4 when Jesus was with the woman at the well and she starts asking him about the Messiah and, and he kind of almost interrupts her and says to her, you're looking at him. <laughs> me, the one you're talking to, I am him. And again, these would be outrageous and arrogant claims if Jesus was just an ordinary person. But he isn't. He is fully and ordinarily human but he's also fully and truly the God of the universe. Pastor Tim Keller commenting on Jesus' claim to be the resurrection of the life, he writes this. He says, The founders of every other major religion said, I am a prophet who shows you how to find God. But Jesus taught, I am God, come to find you. If Jesus is who he claims to be, he is infinitely more than just a great thinker. So Jesus says to us, in effect, you have to deal with my claims. If I'm wrong, I am inferior to all those other founders who had the wisdom and humility not to claim to be God. And if I'm right, I must be a superior way to find out who God is and what ultimate reality is. But I am certainly not equal to all the others. You see, Jesus is, is taking Martha and he's pushing her beyond some abstract belief in a re resurrection at some point in the last days to a personalized belief that Jesus alone can provide. Because you see, Martha's statement about a coming finally bodily resurrection, that was something that was common uh, at the time. The vast majority of Jews in Jesus' time would have believed that. But you see, Martha would have never thought about a resurrection in time, right there before her eyes. She knew as well as anyone else that dead people stay dead. She wasn't expecting Jesus to call Lazarus out of the tomb. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I alone have power over death, and those who believe in me will not die. Jesus says, I am the life. Ordinary life falls apart and becomes less interesting, but a life built about me will never end. It will go on forever, both in its quality and in its quantity. And then in verse 26... Jesus asks Martha the pivotal question for her and for each one of us. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? How does Martha respond to Jesus' question? This is key. She's broken. She's grief-stricken. She, she doesn't understand why Jesus would allow this to happen. She's even just told him as much. 
And yet she responds in faith and trust. She says, Jesus says, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And I don't want us to miss here that grief and faith, even anger and confusion in faith, are not incompatible. She comes, she doesn't understand. She asks a question, she makes an accusation, and she still says, yes, I believe that you're the Christ. And then next we see Jesus with Mary. And this is interesting. As I was studying this text again uh, this week, I noticed something I hadn't noticed before. Look at verse 28, if you have your Bible. I, this is really interesting. Jesus calls Mary. Jesus wants to see her. He says, when Martha, when she, Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose and quickly and went to him. You, you know, some of us, when we're, when we're hurting and we're, we're in anguish, we, we run to Jesus. And, and we're, we're crying out. We're like Martha. Others of us, we just can't bear it. We're too weighed down. And yet, in those moments when it feels like you can't even get out of bed, much less open your Bible or pray, Jesus is there. He's calling you. Go to him. When Mary goes to Jesus and she sees him, she falls at his feet weeping, saying, in verse 32, the same thing that Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, with, with Martha's statement, question, Jesus engages in, in conversation. But, but what does he do with Mary? What does he do with her weeping? How does he respond in verse 33? It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. The God of the universe cried human tears. Jesus does two things. He's outraged with anger and he weeps. Uh, Jesus is actually the one in the story with the biggest response to death. No one is more upset or angry in the story than Jesus. And that, that little word, deeply moved, it's a tough word to translate. You may even notice in your Bible that there's a note probably on it, a little asterisk or a footnote that says, or it could be translated or was indignant. Because, you see, Jesus is not just sad. I mean, he, he is sad, but he's also furious. This is not the way it's supposed to be. He's outraged at death and suffering and what sin has done to the good world that he has made. And this is actually one of the reasons why we can trust that this account is historical also, because two things. First, like, who would make this up, right? If, if Jesus, if you were making up a story about Jesus, going to raise someone from the dead— and Jesus, I mean, he's got, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And, and you make this story up. Wouldn't Jesus walk in kind of with a little bit of a smile on his face and it's going to be okay. Just wait. Just wait and see. It's going to be all right. You don't paint him as one who's just broken down, who's angry, who's upset. Truth is stranger than fiction. Second, Craig Blomberg, in his book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospel of John, points out that the deeply removed, it moved, it referred to a vehement expression of emotion, sometimes including anger. 
and, and Blomberg says, a, a later inventor of unhistorical tales would probably have not ascribed this attribute to Jesus. This is not a picture of, of Jesus that if you were just trying to paint like a nice, neat, tidy picture of Jesus that you probably, well, it's not a word you probably would have used to describe him. So Jesus' response here shows us how we ought to respond to death and suffering. This informs us we as Christians should deal with grief. In fact, if we learn to, learn to respond like Jesus, people will want to run to the church in a time of grief or suffering or loss. For at least a couple reasons. First, the church, when we respond to grief and suffering and death, well, it becomes a place where you can die well. In our culture, in moments of grief, the best we feel like we can do often is offer sentimentalities. Well, they're in a better place, or at least their suffering is over. And while these may be true, Jesus doesn't do any of this with Mary and Martha. He doesn't do that with us. He calls us to himself he weeps, he grieves, he's even angry with us. As Christians, we should be people of great comfort to the grieving. Why? Be because we know that although God sometimes delays and we don't understand why, we know that we never die alone with no eyes on us. Because in John chapter 11, even when Jesus is far away, he's not there in Bethany with Lazarus, he sees Lazarus. He knows Lazarus. He knows this from beginning, from his first day to his last, even in death. The, the great reformer and preacher from the 1500s, Martin Luther, writes, In the hour of his death, no Christian should doubt that he is alone. He can be certain that a great many eyes are upon him, first the eyes of God and of Christ himself, then also the eyes of the dear angels, of the saints, and of all the Christians. No Christian dies alone. This is a great comfort to the dying and also to the grieving. And this also means that, that your death will probably be your greatest evangelistic opportunity your greatest opportunity to declare that your death actually isn't the last word. I've actually been reminded of this recently as I've followed, I'm sure many of you have, I've talked to many of you about it, the story of, of Brittany Maynard, the 29-year-old woman with awful, terrible terminal cancer who moved to Oregon so that she could end her life on her terms and carries this pill that at any time she can take it and will cause her death. And while I certainly don't pretend to begin to even comprehend the agony of that decision and the pain and suffering that Brittany is facing. I, I can understand why she would make the choice she's making. And yet as Christians, I believe that we have a better story to tell. A better story to tell with our deaths. A story that gloriously declares that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. And Kara Tippetts tells this story powerfully in an open letter she wrote to Brittany. 
Kara is also dying. She was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 36. She has four young children. She continues to battle that cancer two years later. And now it's crossed that blood-brain barrier and has metastasized into her entire body. And these are the words that she writes toward the end of her letter to Brittany, pleading with her not to take her life. She writes, I pray my words will reach you. I pray they reach the multitudes that are looking at your story and believing the lie that suffering is a mistake, that dying isn't to be braved, that choosing death is the courageous story. She says, no, hastening death was never what God intended. But in our dying, he meets us with his beautiful grace. It's not a mistake. Beauty will meet us in that last breath. What story will your death tell? So the, the church is a place to die well. Second, the, the church is also a place to lament well. I mean, the lament that, that Adam read for us earlier is a great example. This, the church is a place that rejoices with those who rejoice, and it's also a place that mourns with those who mourn. And Jesus doesn't rebuke Mary and Martha in their lament. He doesn't tell them they shouldn't grieve. He doesn't say to them, well, you should be you know, happy that the resurrection's coming. He doesn't question their questioning. He draws them further into faith. So in these moments, take your questions to God. Cry out to him. He can handle whatever you throw at him. But the key thing is that the question here isn't God, where is God? The question is, God, where are you? Where were you? And there's a subtle difference, but it makes all the difference. To, to ask the question, where is God? And to ask the question, God, where were you? Because once we start addressing our questions to him, even in our brokenness, that's a, it's just a, it's a, it's a tiny bit of, of faith. Lament is an expression of faith and hope. Lament, grief, is an act of faith. We know the world is not as it ought to be. You know God could have done otherwise, and so you come to him like Mary, filled with tears, brokenhearted, wondering why, God, has you done this? Why didn't he act? But, but come to him all the same. Come to him, and he is calling you. Some questions only have one answer, and I'm not the one who has that answer. So what's the answer? What is the one answer to this question of death and suffering? Well, take a look at, at verse 38. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved, and the same word above again, he's angry, he's furious, he's sad. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away this stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For, he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here around that they may believe that you sent me. And then with a loud voice, he cried out, Lazarus, come out. And at this moment, I can just imagine, it's so fast, right, because we just keep reading, but Jesus stands there with this 
stone rolled away from the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. Can you imagine being there? Probably got pin drop silence as everyone is just waiting. What's going to happen? Verse 44. Then the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with clothes and Jesus, cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What is Jesus' answer? His answer is, Lazarus, come out. Jesus' response isn't an explanation for why suffering and evil are in the world. Is it an apologetic for why he waited and let Lazarus die? He doesn't really explain any of that. No, his answer is himself, himself calling life out of death. His answer is, I'm the one who can look at death and pull life out of it. And this is actually where a lot of us go wrong when we're dealing with people who are grieving or suffering. We want to give reasons. We want to explain why God would have let this happen. We want Jesus to explain himself. But, but in many ways, the, the problem of evil, at least as we think about it now, is, is in many ways, it's a new problem. In the past, the answer to evil was, was to lament, to grieve. But, but now we want reasons and explanations. And, and why is that? Because we live in, in a culture, in a time where we have explanations for everything, right? We, we can figure out cause and effect. We know how things work. And this is good, but it also creates a problem because it assumes that everything can be explained and it can't. Because here's the reality. If we have a God who's big enough to be angry at about suffering and evil, it also means he's big enough for him to have reasons that we can't comprehend for why he would allow it. for some of you here this morning, the reason that, that you don't believe in God is because you're waiting for him to explain himself, to, to give you a reason. But, but the struggle is, if you're waiting for him to give a reason, there's, there's, there's two problems that you're going to run into. One, again, kind of what I just already said, that first you're assuming that you can understand. This was, came home to me really powerfully the other day when we took Lucy, our 10-month-old, to get shots and you know, we're sitting there, I'm going to hold her as she gets some pain inflicted to her. And I can't explain to her why. And she can't comprehend why. That this, this shot is going to somehow keep you from getting sick later on. And how much greater is God than me, than I, you know, the distance. So someday Lucy will understand. If God is truly who he says he is, then he is far beyond our comprehension. And so we may just not be able to understand Second, when we ask for an explanation, oftentimes we're just asking the wrong question. Because ultimately the question isn't why, the question is can. The question is not can we understand why God would allow this to happen. The question is can God reach down into your life, into your death, and pull life out of it? Can Jesus in the word of, of Samwise from the Lord of the Rings, can he make everything sad come untrue? That's the question we have to ask of Jesus. Not, why would you allow this to happen? But are you who you said you are? And can you make everything sad come untrue? And, and in this moment, Jesus is filled with grief and outrage. And, and why? Because he sees sin. He sees illness. He sees disbelief and death in the world. That's why it's not just, he's just crying tears of sadness. That's why there's this, this outrage that's there. And there's only one answer to it all. 
to all the brokenness, all this grief, all these tears, and the answer is, Lazarus, come out. Every one of us is going to ask at some point, God, where were you? Why did you delay? And he looks at us in those moments, and he says what he said to Martha. He says, I'm the one with life. I'm the one who will one day look at your life and all the death that you contributed to and all the death that others did to you and say, come out. I have that power. I am life in itself. Death will not remain on anything I speak to. Death and grief are vulnerable to Jesus. Death seems just about the most final thing there is, but when it comes to Jesus, it is the most movable, unfinal, defeatable thing there is. Grief is not the last word because Jesus is life itself. And Jesus is joy unending. Now, maybe you're saying, but but Bill, Jesus has never done this for me. I mean, it's great that he went for Lazarus, but what about me? You see, when Jesus came for Lazarus, he wasn't just coming for Lazarus. He was coming for you and he was coming for me. Let me explain what I mean by that. When Jesus sets out to go heal Lazarus, the disciples don't want him to go. If you read in the first few verses of this chapter, they don't want him to go. Why not? Because at this point, Jesus is a marked man. And if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested and he's going to be killed. They know that. Jesus knows that. And Bethany, where Lazarus was, it's only two miles from Jerusalem. It's a suburb of Jerusalem. And if Jesus went to Lazarus, it would mean he's going to his death. He knew it and the disciples knew it. That's why when Jesus finally does say, let's go to Bethany, Thomas says in verse 16, let's, let us all go that we may die with him. They understand if Jesus goes to Bethany, he's going to his death. You see, Jesus didn't just come to raise Lazarus from the dead. He went to Judea to raise me from the dead because he knew that going to Lazarus meant going to a cross. And Jesus says in John 10, 11, that a good shepherd, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And then John 15, 13 as he's preparing to go to the cross, he says to his disciples, greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus does that for Lazarus, and he does it for you, and he does it for me. There's only one answer to the suffering in your life. It's Jesus' declaration of come out, that he can pull death out of life, or life out of death. Jesus has said it. He said it to Lazarus. He will say it. Jesus has done it. He has risen from the dead. And he can raise you. So the question I ask you this morning is the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we rejoice 